I went to high school in the 50s, and we had a sex education class. And really, we all thought it was hilarious. We laughed and carried on. We didn't feel like we learned anything. And that's just all I have to say. I think it should be taught at home. This is Thomas from Walden, Texas. In 1966, our high school principal, his idea of sex education was that when he learned that one of our classmates, one of my classmates, was pregnant, he expelled both the girl and her boyfriend. This is 1A. I'm Jen White, coming to you from WBEZ Chicago. The teen birth rate in the U.S. has dropped dramatically. As of 2020, it was down 75% from its peak in 1991. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control. Research out this year from New York University looked at a federally funded sex education program that went beyond abstinence-only teaching. On average, places with the program saw a 3% drop in the teen birth rate. But state curriculums and how inclusive they are vary wildly across the country. Only three states require sex education to be comprehensive. That generally means science-based, culturally, and age-appropriate lessons that start in elementary school and go through high school, though definitions vary. And in some places, like Indiana, comprehensive sex education has become another battleground for conservative parental rights groups. I think a lot of parents want to have a say in as to whether or not their kids should be coached on issues regarding gender changes or gender ideology or gender identity or homosexuality. And those, so those are the hot button issues in a lot of this. That was Micah Clark, the executive director of the American Family Association of Indiana. That's a conservative lobbying group. And some sex educators in Indiana and across the country say misinformation about their programs and what's covered is fueling threats and harassment. I was being characterized as a groomer, um, a pedophile, someone who is talking to children about things that are not appropriate, which isn't what I do. The people on my team were feeling scared, um, and I was feeling scared. That's Ashley Robertson. She provides sex education workshops and camps for kids in Indianapolis. In a post-Roe world, many states are rethinking their sex ed requirements, and parents are getting involved. Many are voicing their concerns about what sex ed classes now cover. After the break, we'll take a closer look at how some states are looking at their sex ed requirements. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to connect with us on Twitter. Tweet us at 1A. Let's get into the conversation by welcoming our first guests. Lee Gaines is an investigative education reporter at WFYI in Indianapolis. Lee, welcome to 1A. Thanks for having me. And joining us from Tulsa, Oklahoma, is Heather Duvall. She's the executive director of Amplify Youth Health Collective. That's a nonprofit organization focused on youth sexual education. Their curriculum is taught to middle and high schoolers in the Tulsa area schools. Heather, it's great to have you on. Thanks. Thank you. And with us from Washington, D.C. is Deb Hauser. She's the president of Advocates for Youth. That's a national organization focused on youth reproductive and sexual health. They also provide a comprehensive sex ed curriculum used by educators. Deb, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So let's just start with a basic definition, Deb. What does comprehensive sex education mean? Well, comprehensive sex education can be defined in different ways, but primarily what we mean is that it's quality sex education And it's designed to provide young people with the information and skills they need to safeguard their health, particularly their sexual health, develop healthy relationships and grow into what we would hope are sexually healthy adults. 
it includes way more than just providing information. It also helps young people explore uh, their own identities, the values that they have, along with those of their families and communities. And it should help young people practice communication and decision-making skills, negotiation skills, so that they can create healthy relationships and understand what is an unhealthy relationship and how to get out. Um, comprehensive sex education would be, uh, it would start early, like in elementary school, and it would scaffold up like all the other subjects. If you're learning math, you would start with you know, basic arithmetic and later move on to fractions and geometry and, and up you go. And that's the same with sex education. In early grades, you're just learning concepts. It has very little to do with sex. It's much more about knowing the proper names of your body parts, the beginning of understanding boundaries. Um, so consent education. And then as you move on up into uh, later elementary, you're talking about puberty education. And as you go into middle school, you're doing more on healthy relationships and um, sex, gender identity, ge uh, sexual orientation. And then into high school, you, you sort of fold in more complex uh, situations and, and um, uh, concepts, like how do you become a critical uh, reader or a critical consumer of media so that you can understand Lee, you spoke with educators in Indiana who are providing comprehensive sex ed through workshops, and they've received threats for it. How did this story get on your radar? Yeah, so I discovered this through a parent group on Facebook. I like to spend time in those groups as an education reporter. And I saw Ashley Robertson, that's the woman that we heard from at the top of the show, posting about what had happened to her. And so Ashley, as a side hustle or passion project, she teaches sex education workshops. And she was hosting a summer camp for third through fifth graders. And a lot of what that camp was going to focus on are things that Deb just mentioned. So healthy relationships, bodily autonomy, um, things like that. And it was age appropriate. And what happened was these accusations against her were made by a far right parent group here in Indiana. They claimed that this sex ed camp was a way for her to abuse kids through grooming. They claimed that she was a pedophile. And at first, this was just a local thing that was happening. And then as things go viral on the Internet, this kind of did among right-wing circles. And so it was eventually picked up by right-wing media to the point where she felt like her reputation had been destroyed online. So I really wanted to get her side of the story. What happened here? How did this affect her life? And as we heard at the top of the show, she was really scared. And I think in addition to that, Ashley is a former public school teacher, and she's worried that if she ever chose to go back to a public school classroom and someone Googled her name, that all of this stuff would come up. So it was life-altering in many ways. And I knew that this happening to Ashley was probably happening to other people across the country. And when I reached out to Advocates for Youth, I heard from Nora Gelprin there that absolutely they're hearing from sex educators that they feel under threat right now. Now, Heather, you're teaching seventh and ninth graders in Tulsa area schools. What's the goal of the sex ed curriculum you're offering? Similar to what Deb just outlined, um, healthy relationships, consent, boundaries, pregnancy prevention, STI prevention, and so, and also goal setting. So making sure that young people have 
the ability to articulate, identify their goals and what they want to achieve throughout life with the um, information around positive sexual health. Sex ed really does lay the foundation for lifelong positive sexual health outcomes. Deb, briefly, how is abortion discussed in the curriculum and has that changed considering the Dobbs decision? So most schools have uh, been afraid of dealing with pregnancy options, including specifically abortion, for many years. Um, When I first started my career 35 years ago, there was more discussion of pregnancy options than there was just two years ago or a year ago, even before Dobbs. So there's been a fear of dealing with abortion because of the controversy that uh, and the stigma that abortion has carried. I think now, as you said, uh, I th- states are going to be thinking about, communities are going to be thinking about what kind of information and education their young people need. However, one thing we find is that the places where abortion is being banned or severely limited are also the places that are limiting sex education in the schools. Now, Lee, you spoke with Micah Clark, the executive director of the American Family Association of Indiana. That's a conservative lobbying group. Here's what he said about sex education. I think you have this movement coming out across the nation of parents who are concerned about things being taught to their kids that they didn't know about before. Reporting, what did you find? Why are parents concerned, as Micah put it? There is a lot of disinformation and misinformation out there about what comprehensive sex education actually is. And Micah told me that some parents were upset by what they heard being discussed in the classroom during the pandemic when kids were learning virtually. Uh, What I thought was really interesting about Micah's perspective is that he told me in previous decades the issue with sex ed was that they worried it was promoting sexual activity. Now, he says, the issue of greater concern is what students are taught regarding sexual orientation and gender identity. And so that's something that a lot of parents on the right, uh, groups on the right, think is happening, or perhaps they're intentionally misleading the public about this, that schools are indoctrinating kids into LGBTQ lifestyles and that they are basically brainwashing them. And that is not what comprehensive sex ed is or what it's intended to do. Heather, are you seeing any pushback against your curriculum in the Tulsa area from parent groups or legislators? So in Tulsa, we have a network of very dedicated people who support sex ed. There are people that everyone is is describing that may disagree with it. We don't know necessarily if they are um, against the sex ed curricula per se or, you know, what component of it that that they may be against. But I do want to say that, you know, this the, the misinformation that, that Lee just described is is prevalent and mischaracterizing what sex education is is incredibly harmful. And it's incredibly irresponsible for people to call this grooming or indoctrination because it diminishes the incredibly harmful thing that grooming and indoctrination is, which is exploitive and abusive and manipulative. So sex education here is... Um, supported by many, many people, but there are people who, you know, as we've all heard here, are against it for a variety of reasons. In Tulsa, um, you may opt out of the the curriculum, so there is an opportunity for parents to have that that option if they don't want their students to participate. We asked what you thought sex education should cover, and here's some of what you had to say. 
The answer should be everything. Everything should be taught. I put my daughter in a Unitarian Church nine-month program. It was invaluable. I thought, oh my gosh, I would have covered 1%. This is Barbara from Cincinnati. I've been a sexual health educator for years. Um, In our culture in America, we simultaneously avoid and heavily market sexuality to students and adults. Right now, the rates of sexually transmitted infections in this country are extremely high. So let's just get this information to people as soon as we can. My name is Eric. I'm calling from Lubbock, Texas. I'm a former STD, HIV investigator, contact tracer. I think what is lacking is a safe place for youth, again, age-appropriate, to ask questions and get healthy answers. Thanks for those messages. Deb, what national standards exist for sex education? Sex education is a patchwork of um, just different policies. States have different policies. And then even within a state, uh, sex education can be incredibly inconsistent, even within a district from school to school, depending on who's teaching it. There are uh, some national sex ed standards that are not mandatory, but have been put out by a number of organizations, including mine, that help uh, schools. They provide guidance for schools on what should be taught based on young people's uh, abilities, their learning, uh, their developmental stages, et cetera, and what what they need to know in each grade. I do want to say that across the country, um, there is so much uh, misinformation, and it is a coordinated effort um, by some of the radical right to confuse parents. And yet, if parents would go to their schools and ask to see the sex ed curriculum, I think we could ally a lot of um, their concerns by just actually looking at what's being taught. It really is not. And nationally, how common is it for parents to simply be able to opt out of having their kids participate in these classes? Very common. That's the highest. uh, Most states have an opt-out law. Some have an opt-in, which is much harder because parents actively have to put their young people into sex ed. But almost all states, if not all, have an opt-out policy that parents can just say, I don't want my child in that particular class, that lesson plan or that entire sex ed class. But I will say that when we look at the polling, the public opinion, 96% of parents support sex education in high school and 93% support it in middle school. So there's a large, vast majority of of folks really do support sex ed. It's just when they uh, gin up the confusion through this misinformation that you see the controversies happen. Well, Lee, you went to a classroom in Indianapolis for your reporting. This is Haley Huggins. She's a health educator with the Indianapolis-based nonprofit Life Smart Youth, and she was leading a sex education class for fifth graders. Someone in the class asked if the boys could have babies, and then there was a follow-up question. Yes. Wait, even if they're like, if they're like, if they like boys, if boys like boys. So if it's like two people of the same gender in a relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, then they still would not be able to have a pregnancy because they both would have sperm cells, right? There wouldn't be an egg cell. Lee, the CEO of LifeSmart Youth told you two districts they work with have chosen not to have the group back to teach elementary age students. Tell us why. 
Simply put, parental pressure is what they told me, uh, that there were parents who were concerned about the content that was being taught at the elementary age level. And it's unclear whether this was coming from a far-right group or if this was just organic concern among parents. Uh, And, you know, they will come back to those districts in middle school. The problem is, is that what they're covering in the fourth and fifth grade years is really important information, especially about puberty and what to expect, things like menstruation, acne, body changes, all of that stuff. And by the time they come back and these kids are in sixth or seventh grade, a lot of that stuff has already happened to them. And they feel like they have to catch them up on all of this information that they should have learned at the elementary level, in addition to more complicated information in the middle school level. Deb, when we use the term comprehensive sex ed in reference to elementary age students, what are they being taught versus the high school curriculum? Sure. So in elementary school, especially in the early elementary school grades, we're really talking about what are the real names for body parts? How do you identify an adult that you can trust? Um, how do you teach, uh, you teach young people to respect each other and respect their differences and how to ask permission before you touch someone or use their crayon, for example. It's the beginning of consent education. And also um, some schools will also talk about different kinds of families, knowing that the students inside that classroom may come from, uh, they might be being uh, raised by grandparents or they might have uh, two same-sex parents. So there's some discussion around that. Uh, And then in fifth grade, you really go to healthy relationships, puberty, a little bit about sexual orientation, um, how sex can lead to pregnancy, et cetera. In high school, though, you're really delving into it much more deeply. So again, this scaffolding of trying to start. Consent education is the easiest one for me to show you. So in the the early grades, you say um, you, you have to ask before you take that crown. And if a young, if your friend says no, you have to say, okay, that's fine. I understand. So you're teaching the beginning of consent. By the time you get to middle school, you're making a little bit more about relationships. By the time you're in high school, you're making it very much about sexual consent. So you want to take it and you want to layer it so that you're progressing. The concept should be taught early, but then it isn't really about sex in the elementary school grades. It becomes so about relationships and sexual relationships as you move into the older grades. We're discussing the state of sex education in the U.S. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Let's get back to our conversation on the state of sex education in the U.S. And let's bring another voice into the conversation. Joining us from Jackson, Mississippi, is Josh McCauley. He's the deputy director of Teen Health Mississippi. That's a policy and advocacy group focused on the sexual and reproductive health of teenagers. They collaborate with school districts in Mississippi to provide sex education. Josh, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So Mississippi has the highest teen birth rate in the country. How important are sex ed programs to preventing teen pregnancy? Extremely important. Um, With uh, the laws in the state of Mississippi, there is a mandate that school districts do teach sex education, uh, though it is not widely um, oversought by the department or local department of education. So there are actually many school districts in the state that don't actually teach sex education and are not in compliance with the law. We do work with many school districts across the state to support them 
in implementing uh, evidence-based sex education programs in middle school and high school. And uh, the results that we've seen from those districts that we have worked with have been, been great. Um, but unfortunately, in the state of Mississippi, uh, there are many young people who are not getting the education that they, they need uh, because of their local school districts not teaching sex education. Now, in Mississippi, the law requires that schools teach abstinence-only sex education or abstinence plus. What does that mean? Yeah, so uh, it's an absence-based policy. So absence, so each school district must adopt either absence-only or absence-plus policy. Absence-only is you're only to discuss absence as the most effective way to prevent an unintended pregnancy or an STI. Absence-plus, you still emphasize absence, but you're allowed to discuss or discuss, uh, discuss other methods of, of pretension, uh, pre- uh, protection, excuse me. But so for our program that we work with um, local school districts, we have an absence plus program. It's not ideal, it's not comprehensive, but under our current laws, this is the best that we can do and we make the most of what we are allowed to do. So you're somewhat limited in what you can cover. If you could change the law, what would you like to see? Well, I would like for one, the Department of Education to do another review of sex education curricula that school districts are allowed to teach in the state. So under our current law, the MDE, the Mississippi Department of Education, approves sex education curricula. They last did that in 2011. Um, So we're 10 years out and our current list of approved curricula is exactly the same. And unfortunately, many of these curricula were written in the 1990s. So it's very difficult to do really good sex education in 2022 when you're working with curricula that was written in the 1990s. So that's one thing, having an updated list of curricula options for school districts, but also to um, loosen some of the other restrictions that we have in our law. Um, For instance, as you all discussed before, we have an opt-in policy. So in order for a young person to be enrolled into sex education, they must have a written permission from a parent or guardian. Um, no condom demonstrations are allowed. Uh, likewise, uh, we are required to have gender separated classrooms. So we had loved to also see those restrictions loosened as well. Now, earlier in the show, we heard about sexual health educators in Indiana saying they've received threats. Josh, what have you experienced in Mississippi? So we are very much aware of the well-coordinated disinformation and misinformation campaign happening across the country, including Indiana. It's also happened in Nebraska, parts of California, Florida, uh, parts of Iowa as well. We, for whatever reason, have not experienced that in Mississippi. Um, I I don't have an explanation as to why, but we have not seen the the well-coordinated disinformation campaigns that we've been seeing across the country. Deb, what does it mean when we talk about age-appropriate sex education? Yeah, that's a great question. There are different definitions, but I will tell you that, um, for example, you asked me about standards, national standards. So the national sex ed standards were created with a group of over 40 experts in child psychology, in sex education, in childhood development, etc., in order to really understand and identify in what grades and at what level Uh, students could uh, take in information that would be useful for them. I will say that it's really important to talk about some things before they happen. So talking about puberty before uh, young people are in puberty is very helpful. Otherwise, we have young people who start to go through puberty and are frightened by what 
the changes that are happening to their body. They wanna know, are they normal? So to be able to say, here's what you can expect physically, emotionally, socially during puberty when they're in maybe fourth grade is much, much better than teaching it later in eighth grade when most of them have already experienced it. Likewise, we know from research that it's really important to talk to young people about condoms and contraception before they become sexually active. That if they uh, do get classes and information, both from their parents and from schools, about um, contraceptive use before they're sexually active, they're much more likely to use contraception when they do become sexually active. And if they use condoms and contraception at first intercourse, they're much more likely to use it after. So it's super important to get to young people before they hit some of these milestones. Well, and Deb, I, I, part of what I, I've been hearing from parents is this fear that in teaching sex ed early in elementary school, for instance, that we sexualize children by teaching it. And I don't remember having a sex ed class when I was in elementary school, but I remember having conversations with my parents very early on. And part of why they said they did that was so that I had the language to to talk about if something inappropriate happened to me, I had the language to talk about it. I understood boundaries for my body when I was very, very young so that if, if something didn't feel right, I knew how to explain why it didn't feel right to my parents. Is that part of what you're trying to cover in these early years? You have brilliant parents. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. The research shows that when young people have the appropriate names for their body parts, when they understand the concepts of boundaries and that they have bodily autonomy. They don't know that word, but they know that if something feels not right to them, if somebody touches them in a way that makes them feel uncomfortable, they have the right to say no and to go get an adult that they trust. Those are hugely important concepts. And we know the research shows that when all of that is put into place, young people are much less likely to be um, uh, victims of sexual predators. Heather, Oklahoma has the fourth highest teen birth rate in the country. What changes would you like to see to sex ed standards in Oklahoma to improve those numbers? Well, Oklahoma is a local control state, so we don't have a sex education mandate. Um, and that can play out in good and bad ways. You know, we're able to, schools are able to choose high quality, comprehensive curricula that um, are supportive of the positive sexual health outcomes we want to see. But at the same time, it's very inconsistent across the state. It's inconsistent from district to district. And um, that, that creates even more inequities that we're already seeing exist. So I would love more coordinated. At Amplify, we convene partners, coordinate sex ed that happens in schools, and we work closely with our community direct service partners who then go into to schools to help implement these curricula. But more of that is needed, and a more coordinated effort is needed. I don't know that legislation is the answer. We talk about you know smaller policies, local policies that are supported, there's local buy-in, and that's really what creates um, some change here in Oklahoma. Josh, how has the Supreme Court's decision overturning the constitutional right to abortion changed the way you approach your work or what you talk about in your state? That's a good question. So in terms of sex education, part of our sex education law says that abortion cannot be taught as a pregnancy option. Um, so we have not been able to talk about abortion at all already 
in our sex education classroom. So it has not impacted what's being taught in the classrooms, but it's definitely making us think more about our educators that are actually implementing the programs and how best we can support them in case, you know, these parents' rights uh, groups do pop up in local communities. So that's something that we've been discussing. But in terms of the actual education, it has not impacted it because we are not allowed to talk about it anyways. But we are just very aware of like um, what kind of uh, organizations or local parent groups could come out and and, uh, start attacking our, our teachers that are actually implementing the programs. We got this tweet from John who says, My sex ed consisted of my mom handing me a book. It was completely unhelpful, and I made some risky choices when I became active. Lee, I just want to turn back to some of the threats that we talked about earlier in the show. What concerns are you hearing from sex educators about the the threats they're facing over discussing either other identities or, you know, things that parents may not want taught in the classroom? I had this conversation with Ashley. You know, I asked her, given what had happened to her, was she going to stop doing this type of work? And she said, no, absolutely not. She's not going to. She actually did end up hosting that sex ed summer camp. She had to find a new venue because her initial venue had been threatened so much that they pulled out. Um, But she did worry about other educators, specifically educators from Uh, backgrounds like educators of color, educators who identify as trans or LGB, folks who are under increased threat. You know, she's a cis, heterosexual white woman, and she's like, you know, if this is what I'm experiencing, I can't imagine what others are experiencing. And so she worries that those folks who should really be up in front of the classroom teaching are not going to feel comfortable doing it, or they'll have to just stop doing it because of of threats to their safety. So that's something that she was really concerned about. And I think the general concern from educators that I hear is, is this going to have a chilling effect on the sex education that students receive? And ultimately, they worry it will hurt the students. They worry it will hurt the youth. Because something interesting I noticed in that classroom was these kids... These kids had a lot of questions, and they were hearing things. And if they didn't find them out from the teachers, then they would go to the Internet and other sources where the information might not be correct. That's Lee Gaines, an investigative education reporter with WFYI in Indianapolis. Also with us today, Deb Hauser, president of Advocates for Youth. That's a national organization focused on youth reproductive and sexual health. And Heather Duvall, the executive director of Amplify Youth Health Collective. And Josh McCauley, the deputy director of Teen Health Mississippi. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Anna Casey. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk more soon. This is 1A.